This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I've chosen cases to cover from suggestions sent in by you, the listeners. We're in the final chapter of this series, and this case is a bit of a whodunit. A young girl living outside of New Delhi, India, is found murdered in her own bedroom in a high-security apartment building with her parents sleeping mere feet away. Was her murder an inside job or caused by an unknown intruder? A rash of mistakes made by police at the outset of the investigation would result in the public coming to their own conclusions about who was responsible for the murder. When a second murder victim, a domestic worker employed by the family, is discovered, the public and the media would be divided by race and class regarding the suspects. I want to thank listener Niraj for sending me this case suggestion via our website. Thanks, Niraj. This is the case of the Noida double homicide of Arushi Talwar and Hemraj Banjiri. I'm going to give you just a quick snapshot of the individuals in this case, and then go right into the story. I won't be giving as much biographical information as I normally do, because I want to spend more time on the details of the investigation. Since this is technically still an unsolved case, I decided to approach it a little differently than I normally do, so you can decide what you think. 13-year-old Arushi Talwar lived in Noida, Uttar Pradesh, India. NOIDA is an acronym for New Okla Industrial Development Authority and is a planned city located in outer New Delhi. A city of over 600,000 people, it was ranked as the best city in housing in all of India by the ABP News Best City Awards in 2015. It's home to many large software and web development app companies and enjoys a robust economy. Arushi's parents, Rajesh and Napur Talwar, were both dentists who worked at the same practice in the city. Their days were sometimes long, and sometimes they didn't return home until after 8 or 9 p.m. Arushi was a student at New Delhi Public School in Noida. Because of the hours that Talwars worked, the family often didn't have dinner until late in order to share the meal together. The Talwars employed one full-time live-in domestic worker, a 45-year-old man named Yam Prasad Banjadi, who was called Hemraj. Hemraj, who was from Nepal, had a wife and family back home. He sent a portion of his earnings to provide for them. Some of his duties for the Talwars include cooking, cleaning, and doing grocery shopping, among other tasks. He basically ran the household while the Talwars worked long days. The family lived on the second floor of a 1,300-square-foot apartment with three bedrooms. Mr. and Mrs. Talwar's bedroom was located just next door to their daughters and at the end of a short hallway. Hemraj's quarters at the front of the apartment was separated from the family by the dining room slash living room. His room had two doors, an interior one, and a separate entry from the outside. The apartment was located inside a secure gated building in Sector 25 of Noida. May 15, 2008, was a typical day in the Talwar home. On this evening, both Rajesh and Nepur Talwar returned home from their dentist practice late, at about 9 p.m. Himraj had dinner prepared for the family, and they ate together in the dining room. It was just one week before Arushi was to celebrate her 14th birthday and her parents had purchased a digital camera for her as a gift. It had arrived just that day, and unable to wait, 
they decided to present it to her that evening at dinner. They spent a few minutes together setting up the camera, and Arushi and her parents snapped a few pictures. The last photo taken was recorded around 10 p.m. At about 11 p.m., Mr. and Mrs. Talwar said goodnight to Arushi and went into their bedroom. She also went to her room, but her usual habit was to stay up quite late texting with her friends. Most nights, she didn't get to sleep until after midnight. Just a few minutes after retreating into their rooms, Rajesh asked his wife to switch on the router to the network so he could answer a few emails on his laptop before he went to sleep. The router was located in their daughter's room. At just after 11 p.m., Nippur entered Narushi's room to turn on the router. Now, one thing you need to know that's very important about this case is that most of the doors inside the apartment were self-locking. What that meant is that from the outside of the bedroom door, you would have to open it with the key. And then once you were inside and the door closed, it would lock behind you. That was true also of Arushi's bedroom. So her mother would have had to either have Arushi open the door for her or use the key to open it and enter her room. When she entered her daughter's room, she saw that Arushi was reading a book. Nippur turned on the router and then said goodnight. At around the same time, when Rajesh was in his room catching up on emails, he answered a call on their home phone on the landline at around 11 p.m. The phone ringer was on at that time for him to answer it. Then we know that he sent his last email right before midnight at 11.57 p.m., and the last internet usage was clocked at just after midnight. At around midnight, a friend of Arushi's named Anmal tried to call Arushi on her cell phone, but the call wasn't answered. Anmal also sent her a text, but that wasn't responded to as well, which was unusual. Finally, Anmal tried to call the Talwar's landline, but that call went unanswered. And this, like I said, was about midnight. One thing that was made clear was that Arushi usually was up late texting with her friends or talking with her friends on her cell phone, like I said, until after midnight, usually sometimes even till one in the morning. But this night we would find out later that her phone was inactive after 9, 10 p.m. The text message that Anmal sent to Arushi was never received. This was the night of May 15th. So the next morning, May 16, 2008, at 6.01 a.m., the housemaid, Bharati Mandal, rang the doorbell to the Talwar home. She would normally get there at that time, and usually Hemraj would open up the door and greet her. But this morning, he didn't come to the door. She knocked and rang the doorbell, but nobody came for several minutes. The Talwars were known to sleep in late because they worked late. She continued to ring the doorbell and tried pushing at the outer gate, but it would not open. Now, here's another thing you need to know about the setup of this apartment building. Like I said, it was a secure apartment building. The residence was on the second floor, but the entrance to the residence was on the ground floor. And to get into where you could go up to the second floor, you would have to first pass through an outer gate, which normally could be opened by pushing hard on it. It wasn't often locked, but it kind of stuck a little bit. So you had to push it really hard. And then there was a second door that was a middle door with a mesh or like a grill opening. So you could see through it, but it was another gate. So that was the second middle door. And then there was an innermost door when you finally got to the residence that was self-locking and it was another kind of a mesh see-through gate. The housemaid, Barati, continued to try to get somebody to open up the door, but uh, nobody did and she couldn't get in. She tried pushing on the outer door, but she said it was locked. Finally, she saw movement and saw Napura come to the middle door. But when Bharati said, you need to come out and open the door, it's locked. Nippur said, well, I can't get out because the middle gate was locked from the outside. 
she was speaking to her through this mesh middle door. The first question that she asked the maid after she said that it was locked is where Hemraj was. And of course, the maid had just arrived, so she had no idea where their domestic employee was. Then she said that Mrs. Telwar Nippur speculated that Hemraj must have gone out for milk and locked the door from outside when he left. She told Rati now to wait outside until Hemraj returned. The maid didn't want to wait, so she just said, look, go get a key and throw it down to me from the balcony and I will open the door so I can get in. Brady was not just the employee for them. She worked for other families as well. So this was like her first stop in the morning to do some cleaning and things. And then she would go on to her next job. So she didn't want to wait around. She, you know, had to get going. At that point, just after 6 a.m., Nippur started calling Hemraj's cell phone. And the first time she calls it, it's answered. But then it cuts off like somebody hung up or turned it off. She called again a couple of minutes later. But now she could tell the phone had been switched off because it went right to voicemail or busy, whichever he had it set up for. The maid is still waiting for the keys. And Nippur, she says, still stalls at getting the keys. And she asks the maid to check to make sure, is the gate just latched and not locked? Like I said, it was one of those gates that you had to push hard. So she thought, well, maybe it's not really locked. The maid at this point is getting frustrated and just asked Mrs. Uh, Talwar to throw her the key. So she finally goes into the apartment, finds a key, and throws it down to her. So the next thing that we know in the timeline is that uh, Rajesh, uh, Mr. Talwar, has woken up as well. And remember, this is pretty early. And he enters their living room. He will later state that he saw a scotch whiskey bottle on the dining table, which seemed out of place. For some reason, this alarms him. Well, maybe because nobody had been there the night before and they had had dinner there at that table. And, you know, so who was there with the whiskey bottle? So this alarms him and he tells Nippur to check on their daughter. So both parents go to Arushi's door and they find that it's unlocked, which is very unusual because, like I said, it's self-locking. It locks behind you. So if she's in the room, it should be locked. They find Arushi lying dead on her bed. What they first see is it appears that she has some kind of head wound because there's a lot of blood pooled around her head. She is covered with a flannel blanket and still laying in the middle of her bed. It's like somebody caught her unaware while she was sleeping. They will also find that her throat had been cut very deeply. So the maid at this point enters the residence. She hears Rajesh wailing and, and her mother is like frozen. She just seems to be in shock. And the way that the maid was able to get into the residence is the outer gate wasn't locked. She just had to push on it hard as she was able to get in. And then she found that the middle gate was latched, but also not locked. At least this is what she remembers. She finds both of the parents crying. And Nippur then calls the maid to come into Arushi's room and said, come and see what Hemraj has done. And the maid does not want to go into the room. She really is like... Yeah, something bad happened in there and I don't want to see it. She would only stand in the entrance, but she could see that the girl's throat was cut. They both start telling the maid, look what Hemraj has done. Look what he's done. Why would he do this? Rajesh is saying, why didn't he just kill us? He could have taken money. He's making those kind of comments. The point is they instantly suspect their employee of murdering their daughter. So the maid now runs to the neighbor's house to seek medical help, even though she pretty much knows that it looks like there is no helping this poor girl. The Talwars, their response is to immediately start calling family and friends to come over. Who does this remind you of? 
you know, I know we talked about this a little bit with the uh, Hibara case that I did a couple weeks ago, but it's also kind of reminiscent of the JonBenet Ramsey case because people start coming over. Of course, we know this is a crime scene. We immediately know this is a crime scene. The JonBenet Ramsey, we didn't, you know, we knew that there was a kidnapping. So yes, it's a crime scene, but not a murder scene yet. We don't, you know, believe that yet. But yet either way, here we go, getting all kinds of people in and out of the house, which is going to be a problem, as you can imagine. So their neighbor, his name is Punish Rai Tandon. He finally is the one who asked the security guard of the complex to call the police. The parents have not called the police. But later, the neighbor would testify that when he asked Rajesh if he'd called the police, he told them that their landline was out of order. So he couldn't call the police, which is strange because we know the night before it was working. By 7.15, the police arrive at this crime scene, and a crowd of 15 people are now already in the home. There were five to six people in the Talwar's bedroom. I'll tell you the layout of the apartment. When you walk into the, you know, the front entrance, there is the dining slash living room area. And to the right, I believe, is the kitchen. And beyond that, or right next to it, is Hemraj's quarters. On the right side of the living slash dining room, in the front of the apartment on that side is Arushi's bedroom. And then there's a short hallway and her parents' bedroom is kind of like in the corner. It is adjacent. They do share a wall, but the rooms are kind of staggered a little bit. Hers is kind of sticking more towards the front and theirs is kind of more towards the back. So there's a short portion of the wall that they do share. And like I said, they're both at the end of this hallway. So at least half a dozen people have now walked right past the crime scene. I'm sure that they probably either looked in or went in. Um, and now they're in the master bedroom, which is right next door to it. When the police come, they start asking questions, of course, you know, trying to get a sense of what has happened here and who might be responsible. And they said they were immediately stalled by Mr. Talwar, um, Arushi's father, who said immediately, this was Hemraj. Hemraj did this. You need to go find them. What are you doing here? Get up. You know, you're wasting time. Go, go find him. He even offered 25,000 rupees to anyone who could track him down. Meanwhile, while he's telling them they're wasting their time, they're trying to gather evidence. They are taking photos of the crime scene, trying to pull some fingerprints. But of course, now we know a dozen people have or more have been through there. So this is going to be a big problem. They ask the Talwars what they heard, what they remember from the night before. And they claim that they didn't hear anything throughout the night. They didn't hear any kind of struggle. They didn't any kind of screaming, nothing that they would think that a crime had occurred in their apartment. Their explanation for this was that they had closed their bedroom door and the air conditioning unit blocked out sound from outside of the room. So the only people who were in the apartment that morning that we know were Arushi, who was dead, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Talwar. And when they went to go look for him, Raj, of course, he was missing, which is one of the reasons that Rajesh believed that it was Hemraj who must have killed his daughter and then fled. Now, not only did neighbors and friends arrive at this crime scene and start gathering around and even inside, some people were even inside. By 8, 8 a.m., the media had heard about this. And so the media were on the scene and they were also kind of coming and going. So with the murdered girl's father's belief that their employee had something to do with her killing, the police had an initial theory just looking at the crime scene from that morning. They also believed that Hemraj was a suspect, that he had drank from the scotch bottle that was found on the dining room table, had gotten drunk, entered Arushi's room, and tried to sexually assault her. 
When she resisted, he had pulled out a kukri, it's a type of knife made in Nepal, and slit her throat. And they came up with this theory even though they had no idea what kind of knife was used in the murder because one was not found at the crime scene. The police would announce a reward of 20,000 rupees for tips leading to Hemraj's capture. So that was already out there. He was already wanted under suspicion. By 8.30 a.m., Arushi's body is taken from the apartment for post-mortem examination. And by 1 p.m., her body is returned to the home and put on ice slabs in the living room. By 4 p.m., the body was taken for cremation. The family's religion was Hinduism, so the body would be cremated and the ashes scattered. One of the things that Rajesh would later say was that when they went to take their daughter's body for the postmortem examination, they found that the lab was very under-equipped. It was very hot. There was not air conditioning. He said he was very surprised by how kind of primitive it was. And he said it wasn't clean. It just didn't look very professional. He was also worried about the heat of the place because, as we know, it's very hot in India. He said it was a very hot day. They were in this very hot room with the body, and they were afraid it would start to decompose. This is why they cremate the body right away. The other thing was that the media was already out in mass, and they were trying to avoid this becoming, you know, this big sensational thing, which, of course, they did not end up being able to do. But they wanted to keep it as private as possible. I mean, they're still reeling from this murderer, and they're trying to dodge the media as well at the same time, so they're trying to do all of this quickly. By 4 p.m., the body was taken for cremation. We're going to go back to the crime scene and uh, talk a little bit about the investigation. So part of Arushi's bloodstained mattress was cut out and sent to a forensics lab along with her pillow, bedsheet, and clothes. Four men who were domestic workers of friends and nearby neighbors uh, were told to dump the remaining portion of the mattress on the terrace. Now, there was a door in the apartment that led up to a rooftop terrace that also belonged to the apartment. But when they went to go try and take the mattress up there, and again, the reason why they were taking it upstairs and not out of the, of the uh, apartment was because of the media, because they were swarmed there and they didn't want pictures of all these things yet. They were hoping that, let's just put it somewhere for now, when the media disperses, then we'll take this out and, and dispose of it. But the door inside the apartment that led up the stairs to the terrace was locked. And the police had noticed this when they were first going over the crime scene, that it was locked. And they said at that point that they had asked for the key. One of the police officers had asked somebody else, hey, we need to get the key to this. That officer said, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. So-and-so said, you need to talk to so-and-so. And it just kind of like went around in a circle and they never got the key. But they also didn't really insist on it. So it hadn't been opened yet. So now they're trying to take this mattress upstairs and they can't get up onto the terrace because the door is locked. They asked the neighbor, Tandon, if he could put it on his terrace. At one point, they said that Rajesh Talwar said he would get the key, but he didn't bring the key. And it just went around in a circle. And we don't know exactly why that was or if that was true. He would later say he didn't remember them asking him for the key. There was two things that they asked the neighbor if they could do, if they could take the portion of the mattress that was left up to his terrace. And also they had the ice that they had put the body on when it came back home. They needed to dump that somewhere so it could melt. So they wanted to take both things up there. So he opened the door to his terrace and then they dragged the mattress out onto the terrace. The two terraces, the neighbor's terrace and the Talwar's terrace, were right next to each other. And they were only separated by like a low mesh kind of wall. So you could see through it, not clearly, but you could see through it. 
And that was all that separated the two terraces. They dragged the mattress out onto this terrace and they went back down the stairs. Also that day, the household staff was given permission to clean the house. The police said that they had everything they needed. They'd taken all their pictures. They'd taken the fingerprints. You know, it seems very quick though, don't you think? I mean, that you probably don't want to clean. I mean, what if somebody finds something else or, you know, there's something you didn't think about or you missed something? But no, they said that they told them they could go ahead and clean it. So it was cleaned. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So the following day, more visitors come to the Talwar home, again, to pay their respects. But some of these visitors, which included Dr. Talwar's colleagues named Rajiv Varshni, Rohit Kochar, and some others, said that they noticed blood stains on the terrace door handle. Remember the one that was locked. Somebody went up to up the stairs and said, well, wait a minute, I think I see blood here. Like, what's going on? Isn't this something that you guys should have made note of? And then, you know, why is it just there? Like, this is is weird. So they also noticed blood stains on the floor that were near this staircase. Then they also found blood on this staircase going up to the terrace. And they asked the police. At first, the police that were there basically were guarding the place. I don't believe these were the investigators, but were guarding the place said, oh, it's probably just rust stains, which is crazy. You are just in a brutal crime scene with blood everywhere. And you're going to say that's oh, probably rust stains. When the others insisted that it was definitely blood, then the officers that were there explained it away as the killer probably tried to escape or hide the weapon on the terrace, but found that it was locked in one another way. So what, don't even try to go (laughs) through that door to the terrace to see what's going on? They just dismissed it at first. When they were finally persuaded to search the terrace, they finally told police, you you know, you really need to to search this. I mean, what's going on? They said, okay, we need to get the the homeowner and get the key. And this is when they said that Rajesh Talwar went into the house after they asked him for the key and did not come out for a long time. Supposedly, he was retrieving this key but they never got the key and the door remained locked. And that was, that was it for that day. The next day on May 17th, the Talwars, uh, Rajesh and Nippur, leave for Hardawar to scatter their daughter's ashes. Hardawar is an ancient city and a very important pilgrimage site for, for Hindus. They had planned to immerse their daughter's ashes in the Ganges River off of a bank in that city. While they were gone, visitors continued to arrive at their home to offer condolences and Dinesh Talwar, which is Rajesh's brother, so this would be Arushi's uncle, was there to manage things in their absence. One visitor who came to the house that day was actually invited by um, a colleague of Rajesh's. His name was K.K. Gautam, 
He was a re- retired police officer, a detective. This man, his name was uh, Sunil Chaudhary, said, I really like you to take a second look at this crime scene. See if you see anything. That's how messed up this whole situation was as far as the investigation, at least from the way that the family and friends were seeing it. So they allow him in and he inspects Arushi's room. He is also shown the blood stains on the terrace door handle. And at that point, he's like, you need to go up to that terrace. Like, this is ridiculous. So he calls to get an officer there to break open that door. So an investigating officer arrives and breaks the lock open. Finally, this is a full, what, 24, 36 hours later. As they open the door, they see a long, bloody drag mark from the door to the corner of the terrace next to an air conditioning unit on the roof. The body they find is in an advanced state of decomposition and lying in a pool of blood. They find the body around 10.30 a.m. that morning. Nampura and Rajesh are called to come immediately home now that they found a second murder victim. Rajesh is asked to identify the body and he looks at it, but he says he is not sure who it is. Uh, Nampura will not enter the house, but she stays in the car. She says it is inauspicious to take her daughter's ashes inside. So, of course, what we would expect, this is the body of their domestic employee, Hemraj Banjadi. He will later be positively identified. They'll call a friend of his who will positively identify him as Hemraj. So now we have a twist to the story because the main suspect has now been discovered to be the second murder victim. Fourteen-year-old Arushi Talwar had been found brutally murdered in her own bedroom behind what should have been two locked gates, one locked front door, and even a locked bedroom door. Police immediately suspected an inside job, with the most likely suspect the family's live-in domestic help, Hemraj Banjadi. This theory was blown out of the water when more than 24 hours later, Hemraj was also found murdered, his body discovered on the top floor terrace of the same building. The post-mortem reports would conclude that both victims were killed between 12 a.m. and 1 a.m. They were both first attacked with a heavy blunt weapon that caused a U or V-shaped scar, and this resulted in their deaths. The first blow to Arushi's forehead would have resulted in her death within two minutes, the medical examiner said. An expert would later report in 2012 that this injury had been caused by a golf club. The autopsy also revealed that the victim's throats had been cut post-mortem. The weapon used for this was never found. The wounds were similar to both victims, and the police concluded that the same weapon was used on both of them. Forensic scientists would later state that the wounds displayed a, quote, clinical precision and careful thought, end quote. He said this because the wound was made in an area that cut the windpipe and dissected the left carotid artery, causing swift death. So let me tell you first about Arushi's postmortem report specifically. Um, She was found covered with a blanket and her face was covered with a school bag. Now, this is just my theory and my understanding that murderers who conceal the faces of their victims are said to often be known to them or even close to the victim. And this is because it's more personal when they know them personally, when there's some history there with the victim, that they cover their face, they cover their body, they try to conceal what they did. There was blood found on her pillow, bed, walls, floor, and the front of her bedroom door. Blood was not found on her surroundings like her toys or the school bag covering her face or a pink pillow on her bed that she used as decoration. 
This indicated to investigators that those items were placed there after her murder. No blood was found on the book her mother said she had been reading the last time she saw her alive. And the first postmortem would also rule out a sexual assault. One thing to know is that later on, we're going to have some problems with the postmortem report. And it would be claimed that some of the evidence had been tampered with, including a vaginal swab. But later, it would be concluded that some of this evidence actually was contaminated in the lab, but it wasn't deliberately altered. So again, we're still having problems with this crime scene, the evidence, the chain of command, the way things are gathered, the way that they are, are handled in the lab. Arushi's lower clothing items appeared to have been either pulled down or down and then back up again. And the CBI, which would later be called into the case, suspected that her pelvic area had been cleaned and then her pajama pants pulled up afterward after her death. This is also reminiscent of the John Benet Ramsey case. We had questions about whether or not there was a sexual assault, whether somebody had tried to clean her up, especially in her private area. Those details are somewhat similar. Hemraj's postmortem report would conclude that his body had been dragged at least 20 feet on the terrace after his death. And the evidence for this was the blood trail and abrasions and bruising on his elbows. His body was found lying on the left side of the terrace at the rear near an air conditioning unit. Experts would later conclude that the drag marks found resulted from the body being dragged while wrapped in a bedsheet. So it wasn't just his body was being dragged, but he had been wrapped in a bedsheet and then dragged. They suspected that he'd been killed somewhere else and his body moved to hide it. But later testing with a UV light didn't find his blood anywhere else but on the terrace. So the ultimate conclusion was that he had been killed on the terrace. There was a bloody shoe print found on the terrace and this turned out to be a size eight or nine shoe. Other thing that they found out was unlike Arushi, who they were able to tell had dinner before she went to bed, that Hemraj had not eaten in the hours before his murder. His dinner would actually be found in his quarters that he had looked like had served but never eaten. And they said he would have probably served his plate around 10.30 p.m. Okay, so here's the things that were found at the crime scene and also some more of the problems that were there. Like I said, the scene was never secured. Many people walked through. Evidence was lost and or contaminated. The CBI, which is the Central Bureau of Investigation, kind of like the equivalent of our FBI, would be called in later. And I'll talk about that timeline in a minute. But they would conclude that 90% of the evidence that was at the crime scene was either destroyed or contaminated due to police negligence. Because of this, you know, really shit show of an investigation or initial investigation, both the investigating officer and the superintendent of police would be reassigned to other positions. Now, what they did find was two fingerprints only. With all of this blood evidence, they only found two fingerprints that were found that were suitable to be used as something that they could use as evidence, but they did not match any of the suspects. And I'll tell you about the suspects in just a second here. We'll go down the list. Observations they did uh, make in Hemraj's room were made by that retired detective, K.K. Katam. He was the one who made these notes when he toured the house on the 17th. Three glasses were found in Hemraj's bedroom, two with some liquor in them, and the third one was empty. Now, I'm not saying that he was the only one who observed this, but from what I gathered from my research is the information came from his notes. Um, they also found three bottles. One was a beer bottle, one was a soft drink, and one was a whiskey bottle. Hemraj was said to not consume alcohol at all. One thing I just want to tell you about, about Hemraj is that what I 
learned from some of the things I watched about uh, this case is that he really kind of relegated himself to the background all the time. Like people that even came to visit the family when he was there said we never saw him. Even when he was there, he didn't speak to us. He didn't dress us. He just went about his business very quietly in the background. The only time we really even noticed him was when he was serving us food. Said that was kind of just the way it was that as a domestic you know, servant or employee is that you kind of kept yourself a little bit invisible. Plus, they said he was a very quiet man anyway. And like I said, his dinner was uneaten and his bed was still made as if he'd been interrupted and then not gone to bed that night at all. The rest of the crime scene, what they found, there was no signs of forced entry into the apartment. The middle grill door was found latched from the outside that morning. So like somebody had gone out and latched it from the outside. There were two sets of keys that we know existed. One was with the Talwars and the other was with Hemraj. Now, this part is confusing because the one set of keys they found, they said they weren't sure who that belonged to. Were they Hemraj's or were they Nippur's? Because remember, uh, Nippur was trying to look for her keys when the maid was below and she was looking around to try to find the keys. Usually Hemraj's keys would be right by his door, but they weren't there. Or were they there? And then she used that one. It's very, there's conflicting accounts. So I can't really give you a definitive answer about that. Nampur would later say that she could not find Hemraj's keys. The key to the terrace door that was locked has never been found. Okay, that's very odd. Talwar said that this would have been with Hemraj's keys. He would have had these keys. Another strange uh, detail is both Arushi's and Hemraj's cell phones were missing after the murders. We do know that the last call to Hemraj was made at 8.27 p.m. and lasted about six minutes. Cell phone records indicate that it was made from about a kilometer away from where the residence was, but it has never been determined who made this call. Napur called Hemraj's phone at 6.01 a.m. from her landline. Remember, she was trying to find him at 6.01 in the morning, according to the housemaid. That was the call that was picked up and then disconnected. They also found out that the phone was answered somewhere in the immediate vicinity of the apartment or maybe up to one kilometer away. But when she tried to call it a second time, the phone had been shut off. This caused the investigators to suspect that the killer was in the apartment or nearby that morning. When she called at six o'clock and somebody answered that phone, it wasn't Hemraj because he was dead. So it had to be the killer. Who was that? We don't know. His phone was never found, but it was briefly active in Punjab for a time. And this is about approximately 450 kilometers north. So quite a ways away, they were able to find, you know, a ping or something in that area from this cell phone and before it completely disappeared. And like I said, Arushi was almost always on her cell phone until midnight or later, but that night her phone was inactive after 9, 10 p.m. Friends who tried to call it later said that they could tell it had been switched off. A few days after the murder, the phone was found on a dirt road about six kilometers south of the crime scene. Now, this was not unfortunately turned over to the police because somebody just found it. Of course, didn't know that it belonged to a, a murder scene or anything like that. A housemaid found it and gave it to her brother as a gift. He activated it with a new SIM card, but not until February of 2009. So this would have been months later. And he only used it intermittently. So the signal from this phone, because of that, was not picked up by investigators at all until September of 2009, 16 months after the murder. So by this time, it's pretty much useless. Um, the housemaid and her brother were briefly suspects, but they were cleared. But the investigators would find that the original data card had been wiped clean. 
and investigators found no photos or text messages or anything on the phone that they could use in the investigation. Okay, here's some other miscellaneous notes from the investigators. This is a strange one. And maybe, again, it's one of these things, is it strange or is it just coincidence or whatever? Napur's phone had been shut off from 7.40 p.m. on May 15th. So this was the night they had dinner with their daughter. Remember the last night when they had dinner with her, gave her the camera, all of this. Her phone was shut off at 7.40 p.m. Now, we know she didn't get home till like 9 p.m. from work. So why would it be shut off at 7.40? Shut off at 7.40 p.m. on May 15th and not switch back on until 1 p.m. on May 18th. You know, investigators looked at this and said, okay, what's going on here? Is this normal for her? Is it not? Is this something we need to pay attention to? And what they found is that her phone records showed that her phone had not been switched off even one time during the 60 days preceding the murder. So why all of a sudden is it shut off that night until two and a half days later? We don't know. And the other thing that came out in the investigation was that Hemraj had told some friends about a threat on his life, but there wasn't a lot of details about it. He also told a social worker less than a week before his death that he was worried about some threats or a threat on his life, and he wanted to talk to her about it. She unfortunately had to go to a meeting, said that she would talk to him later. By the time she was able to even think about it again, he had already been murdered. So we will never know what it was he might have told this social worker. One other thing at the crime scene, the bottle of scotch found on the dining room table had both Arushi and Hemrash's blood on it. So they believe whoever it was was involved in the murders, had taken out this whiskey bottle or drank from this whiskey bottle or something. Now, the whiskey bottle had come from a concealed mini bar in the dining room. It was like behind this panel in the wall. I don't know why that was. Maybe somebody can tell me why that would be. Is that normal? <laughs> you know, in a household like this, I don't know. Or is this just something they had because it's kind of cool? But anyway, because it was in this concealed mini bar behind this panel, to the investigators, it suggested that whoever had taken it out knew the house very well. Let's get into the suspects and the theories of the murder. On May 19th, a former employee of the Talwars who used to work at their dental practice and also, I guess he worked for them as a domestic and also at their dental practice later on. His name was Vishnu Sharma. He was also from Nepal and he had worked for the Talwars for 10 years. He sometimes would go home to uh, Nepal to see his family. And when he did, when he was traveling, he would recommend a fill-in help for him. Now, about eight months before the murder, he had recommended Hemraj to take his place while he was on vacation. But when he returned, the Talwars decided to keep Hemraj on instead. So he lost his job. Investigators theorized that Sharma, who was also called Thapa, was angry and came and attacked and killed Hemraj and Arushi had witnessed it, so that's why she was also killed. So he was their first suspect. But no evidence connected him to the crime. And it turned out he had an alibi for the days of the murders. He was actually in Nepal, so it couldn't have been him. So that was on May 19th. By May 22nd, the media is hounding the police for information on this crime. So they're feeling the pressure. So the police hold a press conference and they basically just pull things out of a hat and they say, well, looking at the evidence that we have so far, talking about Arushi's murder, 
was either a, quote, crime of passion or an honor killing. Now, where this came from, nobody knows. It was something they just threw out there. One thing is that apparently they said that they had talked to a friend of Arushi who was interviewed and said that she had something about an inappropriate relationship with Hamraj, which everybody else who knew her, the family, anyone said that is patently ridiculous. It's a complete lie and you are disrespecting her memory because there's no way. What we know about Arushi is that, first of all, she was a 13-year-old girl. She was shy and quiet. She was just starting to kind of become a teenager. Um, She had very close friends. She was very close to her family. Her friends said she never talked like criticizing her family. That was their only child. And they doted on her. They um, did everything they could for her. They just were, you know, enchanted by their daughter. And she was just this this really sweet girl that everybody loved. No hint of any kind of scandals or bad behavior or nothing that they could pin anything on. So bringing this out that way was really uh, something that the Telwar family was just totally incensed about. Like they couldn't believe that they would say something like that. The theory of that is that was like a coded message that they suspected the Telwar themselves of killing their daughter. And again, because they really didn't have much to go on. Now the Telwars become suspects, at least in the media, and then also with the police. And here is some of the theories that come. And again, these are things not based on any evidence because there really isn't any evidence that they can use. So now they're just coming up with theories and trying to make things fit. So one theory was that they killed their daughter for some reason. Then they planned to blame her murder on Hemraj. So they hid his body on the terrace to dispose of it later. But the media attention made that impossible. So that's why they stalled about getting the key to open the door to the terrace. And this is also the reason they quickly had Arushi cremated, the house cleaned up. They said this was also the reason they invited so many people over to contaminate the crime scene to make it hard for them to you know, prove that what had happened. And some of the things that the media at least pointed to and people in the public was one that they said that the family did not express shock or grief, which I'm not sure exactly what they meant by that. Was she crying and wailing? No, she wasn't that. She seemed to be a very even person. And they said the same thing out of Rushi. They said she was always very calm. No matter what was happening around her, she was very calm. She was very even kill. So maybe that was the same personality her mother had. Who knows? In an interview that the superintendent of police gave to the media, said that Arushi's parents, quote, appeared very nervous when first questioned. So, of course, that made them seem suspicious to the public. So that was on May 22nd. May 23rd, Rajesh Talwar is arrested for the double murder of his daughter and his uh, domestic employee, Hemraj. During a press conference, officials state the motive for the killings. And it's funny because in the press conferences that I saw, they said, hey, we have evidence. We're still working on the motive. It seemed like it was the other way around, like you had the motive and you still were working on the evidence, even though there was really not much to work with. So here's what they said was the motive for the killing. They claimed that Rajesh was having an affair with his business partner, a woman named Anita Durrani. They said that Arushi knew about this affair and threatened to tell her mother, I suppose. So Rajesh killed his daughter to keep her quiet. Himraj became a witness to the murder. And so Rajesh had to murder him, too. 
there were reports and rumors in the media, in the public, that Arushi and Himraj would talk about this affair that her father was having and that Arushi was very upset by it. And that because her and Himraj would have these talks, that they became close and they were also having an affair, which, like I said, the man was 45 years old. She was 13. And by all accounts, nobody saw any kind of inappropriate relationship. Arushi never said anything about it. One of the things that the people that did know the family a little bit said, he basically treated her like a, ch- like a child, like, like he would treat his own daughter. He cared about her, but he was not like overly friendly or overly attached to her or anything in that way. It seemed by all accounts to be just a very appropriate relationship with the daughter of this family that he worked for. Nippur made a statement to the press right after her husband was arrested and said she believed her husband's innocence. There was no way that any of this was true. But then the theory of how the crime went down also changed a little bit. I don't know if this was the media, the police, or both. It was later amended to say that Arushi confronted her father about the affair. Then he struck and killed her, but it was by accident. And this is where the golf club comes in because Rajesh had golf clubs and he would golf sometimes. And they tried to make that fit her wound. He struck and killed his daughter. Hemraj came, witnessed this, and so he was also killed. Now, of course, you have to imagine, if this is their theory, that Nippur also had to know what had happened. And yes, this is what they said. She was an accomplice who had knowledge of the murders and helped cover up the murders with her husband. The public now turned against the Talwars and believed them to be guilty. The public also had a big debate about the fact that they didn't believe that Arushi's parents could have slept through her murder because they were right next door to the bedroom. And they said that the AC unit masked the sound. They didn't believe that. Later on, there would actually be testing done. And it was discovered that when that unit was on, you couldn't hear anything outside of the room. Um, It's kind of like that white noise thing where your brain just kind of does something where it's only listening to that. It's not listening to what's beyond it. Now, thumps and things like that. Yes, I think you, you know, you would feel it. It would be something that you would pick up on. But here's the thing. And this is what the medical examiner's report said. If she was struck first, and they said there was no sign of struggle in her room. She was still lying on her bed. So whoever it was came into the room, hit her over the head. She probably was never conscious. They said she was not conscious when her throat was cut because they know because of how the bleeding was or wasn't. So yeah, there might not have been a, a lot of noises uh, other than, like I said, getting her getting hit on the head. And that was, you know, that would be a pretty um, noiseless murder, to be honest, even though it seems like it wouldn't be, but it, that I think it would be. Okay, so he is arrested on the 23rd, a week later, because the police have completely watched this case. They don't have any evidence. It's just, it's a, it's a mess. So the Central Bureau of Investigation takes over the case and the Talwars were very relieved because they said, oh, now they're going to come in and they're going to get real evidence and they're going to realize that we had nothing to do with this and now there's going to be a real investigation. So they were relieved about that. Okay, CBI comes in and the first thing they do is they say, okay, Hamraj was killed. They say, we think he was killed first and that she was maybe a witness. Okay, why was he killed? What happened? Again, there's that report about the glasses found in Hemraj's room. So they say, aha, there was other people in his room that night. Who could it have been? So they ask questions and they say, here's some other Nepali men who were also domestic workers in the area that knew Hemraj. And they probably came over and hung out with him. That was who he was hanging out with that night. So one or more of these men had to be the ones who committed the murder. 
he let them in the house and they were drinking and all of this. Now, here's an, another strange detail is that the retired detective who they said, here's the notes, you know, that he took about the whiskey and the soda and the, and the beer. He said, I never said there was any alcohol. I never said there was any liquid in those glasses at all. I said there was some glasses, but I didn't see anything in it. So here we go again. Again, who's telling the truth and who's lying? Who's making up things to fit their theory? It continues to just not be helpful and just make things more convoluted. So anyway, CBI says, oh, there's got to be these friends of, of Hemraj that are involved. So on June 13th, uh, one of these men named Krishna Thadarai is arrested. They go to his room, they search it, and they say they find a bloodstained kukri knife and some uh, pants that were also had a spot of blood on them. And this was found in his home. Now, he had been an assistant of the Talwars. So that's the first one. So, okay, you got a bloodstained knife and things, but they look at it and realize that there was no human blood on the knife. There was not enough blood on these trousers to have cut two people's throats and then had a drop of blood on the trousers and nothing else. There was no other evidence that he had been in the home, at the crime scene, anything like that. That is on June 13th. They keep this guy for a while. Okay, this is what's going to happen. They're going to pick up these suspects and they're going to keep them for a while until, you know, they're doing this investigation or so-called investigation. They're held while this is going on. And June 26th, Rajesh is still in jail. He is denied bail. On June 20th, he takes a polygraph test and he passes this polygraph test. Now, on June 27th, another Nepali domestic who was a friend of Hemraj, supposedly, or an acquaintance or a colleague, whatever you want to call it. His name's Raj Kumar. He is also arrested on suspicion of being involved in the murders. And then three days later, another man, Vinjay Mandal, he's also called Shambhu, was also reported as a suspect. And then on July 11th, he's arrested. All these men are from Nepal. All of them are domestics. And this is where we start getting this, this he said, she said. And a lot of this is tried in the media. So one side of the media, mostly the media that's written in English and presented in English, are on the side of the Talwars at first. This is an upper middle class family and uh, educated and professionals and all of this stuff. And they say, OK, we're on their side. It has to be these Nepali people who are the employees or the domestics who are responsible. And then you have the other, the Indian media that is more like the people's media and they are against the Talwars. They're saying, no, they're guilty. And these domestics are being set up as fall guys. So that's basically the two camps that are happening there. There's a little variation on some, some points, but that's basically it. So here's the CBI's theory of the murders. Hemraj invited Thadarai, Rajkumar, and Shambhu to his quarters in the Talwar's apartment that night. They arrived around midnight and started drinking beer. Thadarai then complained about Rajesh Talwar for replacing him, remember? He uh, was replaced by... Hemraj, and said that he wanted revenge. Arushi's room happened to be unlocked. Now, here's one theory of why maybe it was unlocked. And Nippur cannot remember. So she says, maybe when I went to go turn the router on, remember at around, uh, it was around 11 o'clock, she went to go turn the router on. She goes, maybe when I put my key in, her lock, in the lock of her door, I left it in there. You can open it from the inside. Right. Okay. So yeah, maybe she left it in the, in the lock when she went to go open the door. She thinks maybe then just turned the, the knob and exited and didn't get the key. And maybe the key was in the lock. 
So that's one of those things that has to drive you crazy. You know, if this is all actually true, that this is what happened and she wasn't involved, that'd be something that drives you crazy to not know, was it my fault? Did I forget the key and leave her vulnerable to whoever it was who came in and killed her? I mean, that's, that's heartbreaking. So all of these men from Nepal were questioned using something called a narco test. This is something really interesting to me that I had no idea about. Narco tests are, is a procedure that is sometimes used in the um, Indian justice system. Suspects are given injections of sodium pentothal, aka truth serum. Remember that old term, truth serum? And after they're in a drugged state, they're questioned by police. And if you, you can see like videos of this, it's ridiculous because these people are basically totally out of it. And they're thinking they're going to get good information from them when they're in the state. You're going to get garbage when they're in that state. Of course, all experts say that the information you get from this kind of questioning is extremely unreliable and is not admissible in court. But still, they do this to these, you know, these guys. But they also administered the narco test to Rajesh. You can watch videos of some of it and they're just almost just brutal with them, you know, like slapping them awake and, and questioning them over and over and they're starting to like, you know, nod out because they're just totally drugged and they just smack them in the face again to wake them up and ask them again. It's just, it's terrible. That's insane. I doubt that they did that with uh, Dr. Talwar, but I could be wrong. So at this point, they had gone over whatever it was with their investigation. And on July 12th, after spending 50 days, five zero days in jail, Rajesh is freed for lack of evidence. He and his wife move out of their apartment and in with her parents. So Rajesh Talwar was freed for lack of evidence. He and Napur had both taken and cleared two polygraph tests and brain mapping tests. Now, let me tell you about this brain mapping test. This test was invented by American neurologist, Dr. Lawrence Farwell. He's an expert in brain science. He measures what he calls a murmur, M-E-R-M-E-R, -E -E which stands for memory and encoding related multifaceted electroencephalograph response. <laughs> multifaceted electroencephalographic response. Nailed it. This response is initiated if the accused recognizes information related to the crime. So what it does is it tests if a suspect's brain recognizes things from the crime scene that an innocent person would not have any knowledge of. It is said to match information stored in the brain with details from the crime scene. So the way this works is first the suspect is interrogated to see what they say they know and don't know. Next, sensors are attached to the head and then they're seated before a computer monitor. The next thing that happens is that they're shown certain images and listen to certain sounds. So this is the stimulus. While the sensors are monitoring the electrical activity in the brain and registering P300 waves, the way the science of this works is these waves are generated only if the subject has connection or knowledge or familiarity with the stimulus. This could be pictures or sounds only. The subject is not asked any questions. This brain mapping test is said to be 99.99% .99 accurate. Quote, brain mapping is one of the most effective tools used in forensic science today. I also read that it is also used by our FBI, which I had not heard this. You guys have heard of this? Let me know because this is uh, interesting and I just wonder how solid this science is. 
So anyway, they were cleared by this brain mapping test and polygraph tests and narco tests. So now the Talwars are, for all intents and purposes, not considered suspects. So they also used this narco test, like I said, on these three other suspects. Well, they did say things while under this influence of this drug, but they all told different versions of the crime and it just varied wildly. So like I said, very unreliable way to question people. But here's some of what they got from this narco test. Raj Kumar said this, and again, being questioned, it's not like he just made this up. It was something that they were asking questions and directing these questions. So he said that Arushi heard Thadurai threatening to get revenge against her father. And she, I guess, ran in and said, ooh, I'm going to tell. So Thadurai then took out his knife and killed her. Hemraj, who was in the room, was horrified and threatened to turn them in. And then Thadurai and Rajkumar dragged him to the terrace and killed him. And after that, they destroyed the cell phones. Of course, we know that's wrong because the cell phones were not destroyed. So that already we know is something, you know, he's making up these details. Here's Thadurai's version. So the other two men, Rajkumar and Shambhu, entered Arushi's room and Rajkumar tried to rape her. She resisted and then Thadurai took out the knife and killed her. So he's saying he killed her. He himself killed her, even though the other two were the ones that were attacking her. They then dragged him Raj to the terrace and killed him because he was a witness. Then Thadurai tells another version. So he tells two versions of his own story. He says again that Rajkumar and Shambhu tried to rape Arushi. Shambhu hit her on the head and Rajkumar killed her with the knife. The knife was cleaned and flushed down the toilet. And then all three of them took him Raj to the terrace and killed him because he was a witness. They then escaped from the roof after locking the terrace door. So they jumped down from the roof or climbed down or something, apparently. Uh, again, where's the blood? And then Thadarite even tells a third version. I mean, they, they had this guy for like, I think it was like 90 days. They had him for like three months. So I'm sure that they gave him this narco test several times because his details didn't match the crime scene, I'm sure. Third version, Thadarite says, Rajkumar again, is the one who tries to attack Arushi to sexually assault her. Thadurai, again, says he took out his knife and slit her throat, which we know is wrong because she was hit over the head first. Hemraj got scared and threatened to report them, so they killed him. This is the next detail, probably because they wanted to go back and ask, well, wait a minute, why didn't you get rid of the parents too then or something, right? They, they could be witnesses or you can get caught. He then says the three other men tried to enter the Talwar's room, but the door was locked. So this goes on for weeks or months, and all of these men were cleared when they all had solid alibis for the night of the murder, uh, including the security guards on duty at the building that night said they saw no one, much less three men, enter or exit the Talwar's home that night. They would have seen this, they said, but people had been coming and going from there. No DNA or fingerprints were found belonging to the men at the crime scene, and no human blood was identified on the kukri knife found in Thadarai's room, like I told you that earlier. As you recall... A uh, crime took place in May of 2008. At the end of December in 2009, the CBI files a closure report on the case, basically ending their investigation uh, due to insufficient evidence. I will read you what they said in this closure report. Okay, and here's what they list as the insufficient evidence. They said that their investigation was affected by the inability of the first responders, that would be uh, the UP police, to examine the crime scene properly and to collect the necessary evidence. Although the CBI found circumstantial evidence against the parents, there were many gaps. And here are some of them. No evidence shows that Hemraj was murdered in Arushi's room. Hemraj's blood was not found on her parents' clothes. The murder weapons were not recovered. 
Rajesh's golf club was possibly used as a weapon, but no DNA or bloodstain could link it to the crime. Also, a team of experts had ruled that the kukri cannot be ruled out as a weapon used for slitting the throats of the victims. The blood-soaked clothes of the murderers, the clothes used to allegedly clean the blood from the crime scene, and the bedsheet allegedly used to drag Hamraj's body were never found. The fingerprints on the blood-stained scotch whiskey bottle could not be identified. The testimony of the security guards at the building said that they did not see anyone entering or leaving the house, but they said this was not foolproof. Of course, you know, there's shift changes, people not paying attention, but I'm still thinking three people, that would be a little bit harder to miss. Scientific tests on Rajesh and Nippur do not conclusively indicate their involvement in the crime. The exact sequence of events between midnight and 6 a.m. on May 16th is not clear. No evidence clearly shows an individual role of either Rajesh or Nippur in the crime, and there's an absence of clear-cut motive. So CBI recommended that the case should be closed due to insufficient evidence. That was in 2009. On May 24th, on Arushi's birthday, she would have been 17 in 2010, the Pioneer a newspaper reported that she had been murdered in an honor killing, quoting unnamed sources with the CBI. Uh, this is when Rajesh files a court order against the media for unethical and misleading information being published. The paper then had to retract this statement when they had to admit that no authorized person with the CBI had spoken to the journalist with the Pioneer, so they just lied. They made it up. And then the article was full of, quote, factual infirmities and conjectures. The Talwars then, now they, they popped back up out of the woodwork because all this is now back in the media. I'm sure they were asked to comment. They criticized the CBI for making, quote, false and baseless allegations against them. Nippur said that the authorities had ruined their life and they would always be condemned by the public because of it. They were still getting a lot of heat from the public. The, again, kind of like the, the John Benet Ramsey thing, whether you believe they're innocent or not, you know, they, they got a lot of uh, heat for a long time because they were suspects, at least in the public's eye. And they got so much heat that on January 24th, 2011, Rajesh Talwar uh, gets attacked with a meat cleaver in front of the courthouse by 29-year-old Nepali man, Utsav Sharma, who used the meat cleaver to slash Dr. Talwar's hands and one side of his face. Now, this man Sharma was a self-proclaimed vigilante who said the legal case had taken too long and he was seeing that justice was done. He had previously attacked an officer who was involved in another high-profile case. That same month, the Talwars filed a protest against the CBI's closure of the case. Okay, They're now criticizing. They're like, why are you closing this case? We, we still don't know who killed our daughter. They were trying to pressure them to keep the case open. Their petition was rejected, and the judge converted the closure report to a charge sheet and had the Talwars charged with the murders. I mean... Talk about turning the tables, right? They had been cleared, given a clean chit is what they call it. And because, I don't know if this is because they went back out there and started criticizing the investigation and the CBI for closing the case. Now the judge says, I I'm going to rule against your petition, but now I am going to open a charge sheet and uh, you are now a suspect again in this murder. Now, does that make any sense? Because here's the first thing I thought of is, why would they want the case to stay open if they were involved in the murders, right? They'd want it closed. So very odd. The Talwars took their objection to the Allahabad High Court and then the Supreme Court, and they petitioned against being summoned and, and the proceedings initiated against them because they said there was no evidence. Both courts rejected their plea. Now they're going to trial for the murder of uh, their daughter and Hamraj. 
and the trial begins on November 25, 2013. The Talwars are charged with murder, destruction of evidence, and common intent. They got a defense team to represent them, and they represented them pro bono. They could not even work anymore because of all of this you know, bad publicity and people believing they were murderers and all of this. So uh, things went downhill for this, this family pretty completely, you know, starting with the, the horrific murder of their only daughter. So with the defense team, they opposed that the case against the three other suspects, why did you drop that case? And that now you're, you're putting it back on, on our clients. They also provided the counter arguments, like I just listed, the CBI had already for the suspicion against the Talwars, like why those were pretty much all blown out of the water. And pointing out, of course, the details of the completely botched investigation. Uh, the Talwars requested that touch DNA testing be done to analyze a palm print found on the terrace that was found later and the scotch bottle fingerprints, as well as the golf club said to be used as a murder weapon. The CBI got an expert DNA witness to state that these tests would provide no additional useful evidence. So they said, nah, we're not doing that. The Supreme Court rejected their appeal and refused any further investigation of the evidence. So basically, they're bringing them back into court with all this old evidence and not allowing any new evidence to come in. So here's the prosecution's new theory um, that was brought into trial. This is their story. Uh, Rajesh heard noises and went to Hemraj's room. Hemraj was not in his room. Then he went to Arushi's room. Why would he walk right past her room to go all the way? I don't know. Anyway, went to Arushi's room. Picking up the golf club from Himraj's room, because that's where the golf clubs were kept. Now we know this. On the way back to Arushi's room, he sees his daughter and servant in an objectionable position on her bed. Now we're back to that again, right? We're back to this inappropriate relationship between this child and this man. And it wasn't like saying that he was molesting her. They were saying that they were like in a relationship, like they were in a romantic relationship, which is, I mean, just come on. In a rage, Rajesh hits Himraj on the head with the golf club. Hemraj moves to avoid a second blow and Rajesh hits Arushi mistakenly instead. Nippur at that point wakes up and runs into the room. Both victims now are near death. They both decide to hide Hemraj's body to dispose of it later. They drag it to the terrace and slit his throat because they think it's such a brutal murder that the police will blame not people like us. They'll blame some thugs or something. And then they cover his body with the panel from the air conditioning unit. They go back to Arushi's room, stage the crime scene, and then also, this is horrible, slit her throat to make the injuries match. Okay, crazy. So then they cleaned up the crime scene and got rid of the weapons. They walked outside, latched the middle grill door from the outside, and entered the house through Hemraj's room in order to mislead investigators. Rajesh was the one who then drank the scotch to calm his nerves after this horrible, horrible, horrible Horrible night of events. Okay. November 25th, 2013, both Nippur and Rajesh Talwar are found guilty of both murders. They're convicted for murder, destruction of evidence, and misleading the probe. The next day, they were sentenced to life in prison. Two months later, they challenged the decision at the Allahabad High Court. And three and a half, actually almost four years later, on October 12th, 2017, the High Court acquits the Talwars of all charges stating that the evidence presented by the CBI was insufficient for a guilty beyond a reasonable doubt decision. Didn't the CBI said that themselves? Hello? The high court also criticized the CBI for its theory of the murders, saying it was, quote, an impossible hypothesis and, quote, patently absurd. Didn't I say that? 
They also castigated the media for having jeopardized the investigation by sensationalizing the murders and carrying out their own botched trial by media. This was something that was going on in the news the whole time. But the police were blaming the media for making this investigation a circus and making it impossible to really follow the investigation because it was all trial by media. And of course, the media was pointing the finger directly at the police saying, you botched the investigation. We didn't botch the investigation. But to be honest, it was a little of both. Of course, they completely botched the investigation from the get-go. But the media then convoluted things by putting all of this stuff out there. Everybody wanted to be part of this big story. And so people would come and give interviews with false information, outright lies. It was just a huge mess. So both of these murders are still officially marked as unsolved. Hemraj's family still believes the Talwars are responsible for his murder. Now, let me tell you about his wife because I didn't tell you that. So Hemraj's wife traveled to India from Nepal, but it wasn't until three years after her husband's death. At that time, she met with the CBI and told them that she suspected the Talwars of murdering her husband. She said that he was very close to Arushi and she was like a daughter to him, but he did not like Rajesh Talwar. In 2007, she said that Hemraj had visited his family in Nepal and said that Dr. Talwar was short-tempered and very critical of him. He said the doctor would become angry at minor issues and even chased him and hit him sometimes when in a rage. She also claimed that Hemraj had called her two weeks before his murder to say the Talwars suspected him of, quote, leaking family secrets. And she said the Talwars and Dinesh, Rajesh's brother, threatened to kill him if he revealed these secrets. Now, they asked, well, why didn't you tell us this before? And uh, I'm not really sure what her answer to that was. She just kind of said she didn't want to get involved or something of that nature. But then again, we don't know. <sighs> so many things were said. It's really hard to know. It's really, really hard to know if this was something that she just felt like they should be facing justice and they weren't. And she was going to give this information to put the police back on their trail but either way, the evidence didn't bear this out, that they had killed Hemraj. But Hemraj's family still believe the Talwars are responsible for his murder. And who are we to say they're wrong? We don't know. There was a book titled The Killing of Arushi and the Murder of Justice published. In it, it critiques the investigation by all involved and makes a larger point about the injustice found in India's legal system. So this became a bigger debate in the country about who actually gets justice. And who is it's given the benefit of the doubt? Who is it that is made the fall guy? You know, and of course, they're talking about class and injustice in that system. A soap opera in India was created that was loosely based on the double murder of Arushi and Hemraj. Nippur tried to get the National Commission for Protection of Children's Rights to stop the airing of this program, saying that it was exploitive. And the media company Balaji Telefilms was attempting to profit from uh, their tragedy. But the show actually was aired as originally planned. In 2019, HBO aired a two-part documentary titled Behind Closed Doors, and this is in English and or with subtitles, that tells the story of the double murder of Arushi Talwar and Hemraj Banjadi using archival television footage, interviews with key players, and dramatic recreations. It's part mystery and part social commentary, and it goes into the class division, like I said. The way that they portray it is that well-off Indians and English-language media outlets supporting the Talwars, while the working class and Hindi-language media supported the domestic employees implicated in the crime. So how do we wrap this up? Well, just a little commentary here. 
A brutal double murder that should have been fairly easy to solve due to the limited access that most had of the home, the amount of blood evidence that could have led to identification of the killer had the crime scene not been so thoroughly contaminated and rendered useless, still remains unsolved. There's been no justice for either Hemraj or Arushi. So, like I said, Hemraj's family still believe the Talwars are guilty of murder, but while it's pretty compelling evidence that not only did the Talwars pass multiple polygraph, narco, and brain mapping tests, but it was they that objected to the CBI closing the case, like I mentioned. And I still have to say, would a guilty person want an investigation continued? It's a good question. For many, it's difficult to fathom how the parents could have been sleeping mere feet away from where their daughter was murdered and yet heard nothing. But if she was taken unaware, like I said, hit over the head to incapacitate her immediately, the way that the uh, medical examiner believed she had been killed, and then her throat was cut, there may have been little struggle or the noise may have been minimal. And like we said, the white noise of the air conditioning unit would have muffled some of that sound. And yet, those phone calls disturb me and they make me wonder. Arushi stopped using her cell phone around 9 p.m., which was very unusual. Her friend Anmal tried her by phone and text at around midnight but couldn't reach her. We all know that Rajesh was sending emails up till just a minute or two before midnight and that Anmal called the landline around that time and it wasn't answered. But it had been answered at 11 p.m. And someone answered Hemraj's phone at 6 a.m. Who? It was turned off right after that call. This must have been the killer. So who was it? Could an intruder have gotten inside through Hemraj's outer door to his quarters? Was it someone he knew or a stranger? It would make more sense to me that if it was someone intent on molesting or killing Arushi, they would have had to get past Hemraj first. So he would have possibly been struck down in his room. Then the killer went to Arushi's room, accosted her there, and killed her. Although there are also conflicting accounts of whether she was sexually assaulted, that goes to that whole lab thing that I talked about. And again, that's something that they're not going to be able to definitively prove because of the problems with that evidence as well. So if that happened, then why go to all the trouble of taking Hemraj all the way up to the roof and then kill him there? So he was knocked unconscious. Arushi was killed. They come back. They take Hemraj up to the roof and kill him there. It's very curious. I kind of tend to agree with the theory that the victims knew their killer well due to the way the bodies were attempted to be covered up. Arushi's face was covered and Hemraj, although his body appeared to be hastily discarded, the killer still made an attempt to conceal it by using a panel from the cooler on the roof. So who does this point to as a suspect? What do you think? The various motives outlined by police seem to be made out of a whole cloth and simply provided by innuendo and gossip. We still don't know why anyone would have a reason to murder either Arushi or Hemraj. That is still a mystery as well. So, you know, I don't often or almost ever cover unsolved crimes, and this is the reason why. It's so frustrating when you don't have any answers. I'll kick the question back to you then. Who do you think was the most likely suspect or suspects? What was the motivation? Who was killed first? How did the two seemingly unlikely victims get caught up in such a horrific crime? Let me know what you think. Send me an email through our Facebook page or at esther at truecrimepodcast.com or connect with me through the Facebook group. Look for the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a safe and wonderful Thanksgiving if you're in the States. I'll be off for the next two weeks, but I'll be back the first Monday of December, and we'll be dropping three more episodes before I wrap up the year and the holidays begin. Can you believe we're already at the end of this crazy year? 
Wow. As always, I thank you all for continuing to come back to listen to my true crime stories. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Help with research and final audio mixing by Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.